All right, well, uh, we're in Acts. We've got a small number with us today, but I hope that you're ready for this. Uh, what we're going to have today in Acts chapter 14 is I'm going to tell you a story. Okay, it's a true story. I'm going to go through this, this chapter of Acts chapter 14, and we're going to talk about some things that Paul went through. We're going to share the story, and right in the middle of this story, you're going to hear this big truth. So sometimes when I'm going through these these stories like this in Acts, I'm going through these different narratives. There's different points I can make along the way, but this one really has one big truth wrapped up right in the middle of this passage. It's a challenging one, but I think that it's one that most of us, to some degree, say, I get this. So let me start with Acts chapter 14, but before I do, let's take a look at this map. Let's think about what's going on. Um, who is on the missionary journey right now that we know of for sure? Paul and Barnabas. Wow, that was, that was really quiet. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, right? And they were in Antioch, and this church commissioned them. They made this little trip down Seleucia. They took off. They sailed across the sea to the island of Cyprus. Uh, there was a third person that was with them at this point. Anybody remember who the third person was? Paul, Barnabas, and who else at this point? Yes, John Mark, right? Okay, so John Mark is also with them. Now, Barnabas is from Cyprus, and Barnabas is uh, the uncle, was it uncle or cousin? Now, I've forgotten. Uncle, I think it was uncle of John Mark, and so they've made it here, and then we're gonna, they're going to make it across this 140-mile trip across Cyprus on foot, and I showed you a picture of that last week. There's uh, some paved roads there dating back to the Roman times. When they're in Paphos, they meet a couple of different people. Anybody remember who the, the people are that they meet? I think I'm going to stop asking questions because maybe none of you were here last week. This is sad. Good thing I should have given a quiz, shouldn't I? Pop quiz. Who, who did he meet? Who did Paul and Barnabas meet in Paphos? One of them was a magician, another magician, named what? No clue? Okay, I'm going to stop quizzing you guys. This is, this is sad. Named Bar-Jesus. Remember that? Hey, Bar-Jesus was, remember the name Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus and didn't literally mean the son of the Jesus that we know. Jesus was a common name at this time period. His other name was Elymas. When I think about modern day equivalents to these magicians, um, I don't think it's always just to simply think of a magician. He wasn't pulling rabbits out of hats and things like that. Uh, he was very much a spiritualist claiming to know things from God. Do we ever have anything like that in our modern world where somebody gets up and says, I've got a message from God, and it's of themselves? Absolutely. So sometimes when we think about these magicians, regardless of what other works they might be performing, these are people who are false teachers that were steering people away from God. And so uh, Paul actually looks intently at this man, uh, confronts him, and the man is blinded by Paul's proclamation. And it's from this proclamation of his blindness that the, the other guy that Paul met in Paphos, which was the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, became a believer. So they take off from Cyprus, and they head up, and this is where we're going to be at today, they head up to Perga. Actually, we got a little bit of this last week. Head to Perga, and for there, they head up to this Antioch. So notice there's a different Antioch, right? This is Antioch of Pisidia. So they're up here in this Antioch, uh, and they're preaching Paul starts off preaching in the synagogue. 
Uh, this is his normal routine. We talked about that in Sunday school today. Uh, he goes to the Jew first and to the Greek. He preaches a sermon. He receives some opposition. Extravagantly shows from the Old Testament the Gospels for the Gentiles as well. The Jews don't like that. They don't like that he's opening up the doors to all these Gentiles. And it, the Bible actually says that they're jealous over this and they uh, kind of get together and they say they try to run him out of town. And in fact, that's what they do. And that's how we ended last week. But right before that happened, this was stated. When Paul was saying the gospel is for you, you Gentiles, it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's a big idea, isn't it? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And so last week I kind of ended that topic, and I think this is actually in your bulletin as well. Some, we're going to see this when Paul spreads the gospel witness, some listen. Some will oppose. But some, some will believe. Your responsibility is to stay on mission and leave the outcomes in God's hand. As you share the witness of the gospel, you may have some people that flat out oppose you. You may have some people that are just curious and hear the story and go, mm, it's good. But every once in a while, some will believe. What a great thing that is. This reminds me of one of my favorite, and I think maybe your favorite teachings of Jesus. Have you heard this teaching of Jesus where he says, I am the good shepherd? Who's heard this verse before? Well, a lot of you. I am the good shepherd. He says, I know my own and my own know me. And he paints this picture of this shepherd who when he calls for his sheep, he calls them by name. And his sheep, because they recognize his voice, they will come to him because he's their shepherd. That's the picture that he paints. But then he throws this little statement in two verses after this when he throws this and he says, uh, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, referring that we know later, they didn't know this at the time, but referring later to the Jews, not of this fold, the Jews. I have other sheep, so the other sheep are the Gentiles, people outside of Judaism, that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now we're getting into this big truth. There's, there's hints at it with passages like this. So let's get back to our map here. So uh, they're driven out of Antioch. That's what we talked about last week. They're driven out of Antioch, and they head over to Iconium, and that's where we're going to start this morning. I do have a picture of a road. This is a picture of a road in modern-day Turkey. This road was paved during Roman times. This is part of, part of this road called, uh, they call it the Via Sebaste, and it's just this, this Roman imperial highway. And so I, I love pulling up pictures like this because... This is the highway that goes from Antioch through Iconium all the way down to dirt. Like we're talking about, this is the path. So when we think about why was Paul going this direction, well, there was a major highway along that direction. So when you look at that, isn't it kind of neat to think about Paul, the apostle, some of those stones, he could have actually set his sandaled foot on a few of those stones that we're looking at in that picture. That's pretty amazing. But that's, that's a road that's still around. Obviously not used as a road anymore, but this road had been paved by the Romans and this is the road that Paul is traveling with Barnabas uh, to Iconium. So now we're going to jump into it. So we're gonna, I want you to enter into the story if you can. Okay? Can you just enter into the story? Think about what Paul's been doing. He's with Barnabas. John Mark left them. 
when they left Cyprus, Paul and Barnabas have continued on in their journey. They went to Antioch. They were driven out of the city. They're going in now into Iconium. It says, now at Iconium, they entered through, or they entered together into the Jewish synagogue again and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So he's kind of following the same pattern. And obviously, he's extended it out to the, the, the Gentiles or the Greeks in this passage, and many of them believe, just like before, just like what happened in Antioch. But the unbelieving Jews, well, this is starting to seem familiar, isn't it? The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Notice I, I ended with a so they dot, dot, dot. What are they going to do here? So now, if you had just been in Antioch, and you'd gone to the Jews, then you'd opened it up to the Gentiles, and then the unbelieving Jews had kind of gotten together and run you out of town. And then you go to the next town, and you go to the Jews, and then you go to the Gentiles, and then the unbelieving Jews get together, and they're, they're stirring up people against you. This time, the, the city itself, the, um, all these other Gentiles that aren't believing ones yet, he'd stir up the city against you. What would you do? That's a question. What would you do? <laughs> I'd be tempted to leave, wouldn't you? And now there's going to be places and times for that. I'd be tempted to be like, uh, or change my pattern, or come about it in a different way. It'd be tempting to soften the message, wouldn't it? If my message is, is being done in such a way that it stirs up people not just to not believe it, but to actually get stirred up to, be, to poison people's minds against you, it'd be very tempting to soften the message. That's not what they do. In fact, what do they do? They remained for a long time. I think that's just funny when I read it that way. You just, so, so, they, so they stirred up the Gentiles against them, and so they remained for a really long time. Speaking boldly for the Lord, and notice the way this is phrased, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace. So the who is, is Jesus, the Lord, so Jesus is part of what's going on here. He's bearing witness to His grace. Isn't that how it says it in this, this verse? Who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So He's empowering these two to be doing signs and wonders to bear witness that this is the truth. A little side note. People often take church so lightly in Ephesians, it says that Christ gave his life for the church. And here we see Paul risking his life for the sake of establishing churches, establishing people in those churches with teaching. Congregations of believers fellowshipping together, and he's there as long as he can stay. So the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. So this becomes citywide news over this long course of time that he stays with them. And they're divided. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, like I mentioned before, there are times to say, let's, you know, get head out of Dodge, right? So they, when, when it comes up, they're going to stone them. They say, well, let's head on. They've been there a long time. They've established some people but they decide to head on to the next place. So let's take a look at our map again. 
So they've they made it up here. Antioch, they've received opposition, driven out of town. Iconium stayed there for a long time, establishing a group of believers, a church. But then uh, they hear that uh, they're going to be stoned to death. I can't help but think Paul might be thinking, I've been on the other side of this. Remember Paul back the first time we met him? Where, what was he doing? He was overseeing the stoning of Stephen. The tables have turned, haven't they? He heads down to uh, Lystra, Derby, okay, in the surrounding area. So he's not just in one or both of the towns. He's kind of spreading out into the countryside. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. And this sounds really familiar. Does this sound familiar to you? From Acts? You guys are so quiet today, it's starting to bother me. You guys remember, come on, you guys remember, has something like this been set up before? Yes, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. That was so much better. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna build on that there. Yeah, this sounds familiar. It's actually Acts chapter 3. Um, I'll give you a little hint. Peter and John went to pray. And what do they meet? Don't they meet someone who is crippled from birth? Interesting. Um, I'll come back to this. Verse 9, he listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, and last time Paul looked intently at somebody, he cursed them with blindness, but something different is going to happen here. Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Again, does this sound familiar to that story from Acts chapter 3? Well, you know what? Believe it or not, I actually kind of knew that you guys would have forgotten this teaching. It wasn't just about a few months ago. I can tell you guys have not been paying attention. So let's go back. Acts chapter 3. A man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him and said, so see the similarities starting to develop? Right? Just like Paul looked. Now, let me tell you something. Before I finish this, ancient historians from Luke's time period. Now, Luke, is we can consider him a historian. One of the things that they did as they wrote is they would purposefully write stories and emphasize similarities. And they would do it for a purpose. And so when we hear the similarities in this story compared to the previous story, there's a purpose behind what Luke is trying to, he's trying to get you to see this. He wants you to read this and go, this is just like Acts chapter 3. Of course, it wasn't divided into chapters, but this is just like what happened earlier with Peter and John. Now it's Paul and Barnabas, right? Notice what he says. He says, look at us. And he fixes his attention on them. So right, looking intently, fixes his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So he's looking back just like, Paul and Barnabas looking at each other, making eye contact. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, right, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, didn't it say just a minute ago with Paul and Barnabas, when he said, stand up and, and walk, what did that guy do? Did it say he just got up casually? Did he also leap up? Yeah. So Luke is trying to get you to see something here. This is a very similar, there's a lot of similarities. Both these guys have been lame from birth. Both these guys that were looked intently upon, right? Both these guys, they're commanded, get up and walk in the name of Christ. 
Both these guys, when they get up, they don't just get up, they leap up. And both these guys are going to cause a bit of a stir, as we're getting ready to see. Now, why might Luke have done this? There could be a lot of reasons, but I think one in particular is to show that what had happened in Jerusalem by the hand of God is now happening somewhere else. Luke wants you to see that there is a great author to this big story. And that author is God himself. He's spreading the gospel. He's spreading the good news. And he's doing it in ways that are similar enough for you to recognize and go, yeah, and maybe you even know this yourself. You've ever had something happen and you kind of know in the back of your mind, you're like, I can tell. It's like God, God has his fingerprints all over this. That's what Luke wants you to see. Luke wants you to see the hand of God working this out. Verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, so Paul probably wouldn't have understood this, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So Paul, he's not going to understand what was just said at first. Now why would they do this? You you might think all this thing. This is a piece of pottery there's a myth a greek myth when zeus their chief god and zeus's spokesman hermes came down and took on human form and in this myth they come down in human form and this is a depiction of what they look like here's zeus older and some some of the other depictions have him even with a gray beard older guy and then you got hermes who is the younger one who is the one doing the talking okay So in this myth, these two gods come down in human form and the town that they come to doesn't recognize them and doesn't show them hospitality. Those two gods then destroy the town. So what is going on and what you're going to see with these people is that they're thinking about their own religious background and they see what just happened and Zeus was known as the hearer of prayer and Hermes is the one speaking and you know, announcing things on the behalf of Zeus. And so what they do in verse 12, it says, Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city. So this is their religion, right? This is their belief system. So Paul and Barnabas stepped into this town and right in the center of this town in their religion, their belief system, They believe in Zeus and Hermes are two of the people they believe in. And so when they see this act happen, of course, they want to immediately say, the gods have stepped down among us. In other words, we don't want to miss it because the last time that this happened in our mythology, the town was destroyed. So we don't want to ignore the fact that these people are here. And so, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. And so can you imagine Paul and Barnabas at this moment? They don't speak Lyconian, so they haven't heard specifically what was just said. They heal somebody, and they see the crowds just getting excited, and next thing you know, the, this, this priest of Zeus is coming out, and they're, they're pulling in bulls and garlands are happening, and there's like a parade going on, and, and they would do this. They would you know, take the animals through the city, and then at the, at the temple of Zeus, they would offer sacrifices. They were going to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. I do think Paul and Barnabas are going to respond to this when they realize what's going on. They're going to go, yeah, this is good. We can, we can kind of use their belief system. Good is happening. For, is that what they're going to do? Absolutely not. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, so somebody must have said, 
This is, they, I, they're probably going, what, what are they saying? What's going on? What are they saying? When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. Does that sound familiar too? Who else did that just recently? Peter. Remember when Cornelius wanted to bow down before him and worship him? Peter said, no, I'm just a guy just like you. Paul and Barnabas, so we're seeing those similarities again and again. We're also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, gospel, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, we're, we're, we're approaching onto what I, I said at the beginning was this big truth. It'd be easy to skim right through this story and not catch this, but do you understand what they're saying? Paul and Barnabas just said, guys, we come here, we're just men, we've come here to tell you good news, and the good news is that you should turn away from these vain or empty things to serve the living God. What are the vain and empty things that they are referring to? And they said, turn away from these vain and empty things. What are they referring to? What might they have, as they were saying it, motioned with their hand to say, these vain and empty things? What are they talking about in this city with these people? Yeah. Did they not, in one sentence, negate their entire belief system? How would people respond to that today? Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by Him. Well, that's kind of closed-minded. Let me ask you, okay, let's get real for just a moment. Because this is one of those moments where I really need you to enter into this and communicate a little bit with me. In my head, when I read this story, I I recognize this and I got to thinking, that is precisely one of the challenges that we face today because Do you understand that part of broadcasting the good news, the gospel, is to say all other ways are vain, empty things. And God is calling you to turn away from those things. How does the world respond to that today? Is that a good thing or a bad thing to be so narrow? Now some of you are whispering it a little bit. Is it good or bad? It's con- <laughs> in their eyes, bad, right? They, they, I mean, you're, you're looked at as kind of a simpleton, aren't you? Like, what's wrong with you? You're so full of yourself to think that the way that you figured, you figured out the right way, and we're all wrong. I mean, there's suddenly the, 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 the attack starts to come. I mean, I think we recognize this more than we realize. I don't think we're that far away because our society is civilized. But I don't think we're that far away from people responding the way these people did. There may be some people even in our country, I know it happens across the globe, but even in our country, when we put our foot down with the gospel to say, and understand it's not in a prideful, arrogant way. When we present the gospel, we're not being prideful or arrogant about it. We're just saying, now some Christians might be. Get that straight. Some Christians are prideful and arrogant because they go, I've found the way. And you're an idiot because you haven't. (laughs) 
I, I would argue that that person may not have really even found it if they have that attitude, by the way. Someone who's found the gospel, it's, it, it's the phrase I've used so often, it's like a beggar. It's like you find this treasure hidden in a field. You went and sold all you had to find this treasure. And, and you, you, you're, you're, as the gospel message becomes apparent to you, you realize that this isn't just for you, it's for anybody that believes in it. All they have to do is turn away from everything else that they've been following and follow this. And so with great compassion of heart, a genuine Christian with great compassion of heart has to at some point say, God wants you to turn away from all the other belief systems that you've held. They're vain, they're empty. You see that big truth sneaking into this? He then turns to talk about the creator. He said, uh, turn away from these vain, empty things to serve a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He basically just said, every sphere that they understood, when they think of spheres of reality, you got the heavens above, you got everything up there, you got the earth and you got every stuff, all the stuff in the water, Right? When, the, when a Greek would describe every place of existence, if they want to talk about everything in the entire universe, they would say, the heavens, the earth, and the sea. That's how they said everything. Paul just said, the God, the living God, he made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that exists in those things. So everything that's in the universe and everything that's in the universe, all things that exist, spiritual things, non-spiritual, everything God made. There is only one God, Zeus, is not God, is what Paul has just declared. Not only has he declared that he is not Hermes, the spokesman for Zeus, he's also declared that Zeus is not God. He's vain things. And this is where the truth gets even bigger. And for many, difficult to swallow. Paul goes on, he says, in past generations... Now, I, I have to find a way to, get, to read a little bit and make you focus. There we go. I have a magic blank button right here. I can just blank out the screen. Okay, so there it is. In past generations, pause. Okay, so pause. In past generations, now when he's saying that to these people who've never heard the gospel, and he says in past generations, that's generations plural, how many generations would you theorize he's referring to? One or two? 2030, dating all the way back, all the generations before, all those generations. He said in past generations. So he basically, at this moment, just told these Greek people, you and all of your ancestors. In past generations, he, being God, allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. God in the past has just let every day save yourself, do what you want. You're on your own. I won't intrude. He allowed them to walk in their own way, yet he did not leave them without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. I mean, these people have had good days and bad days and good seasons and bad seasons. They've had parties where they've brought their great harvest together and rejoiced and celebrated and, and feasts and festivals. And all those things, Paul's saying, were provided by God. 
He left himself. He's done all these things for you. In past generations, he did this. This reminds me of another time where Paul teaches on this exact same thing in the book of Romans. He says this, Romans chapter 1. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So the entire globe stands before God. God has made, his wrath is now being made known. It's revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness because they've suppressed the truth because what can be known about God is plain to them. He goes on to say, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Chew on this. This is a big one. Every single person that's lived on this planet, they can look around and see creation all around them and recognize there must be a creator. There must be. It's obvious to them in the creation of the world. He goes on, For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Do you understand what he's saying here? This is precisely what's gone on across the globe. Instead of honoring God as God, what have they done? They've brought God down a step and made him in the image of things that they can recognize. The Jews did this once and they made a calf, a golden calf. Here are these people in Lystra. What have they done? They've got Zeus and Hermes and all their plethora of gods that are gods of different things. Even today, I think we, we, we hear stuff about Zeus and Hermes. We're like, well, we don't do that, those ancient gods. You know, we don't do that. But how often do people... Uh, honor and worship Mother Nature. They're willing to honor nature and not the God of nature. But what about this one? I, I've met many people in my life that say uh, they're just in awe as they look at science and they think about all the, and I love science too. And so I'll be in awe with them. Look at this, it's amazing how these molecules do this and this thing here. And what about this? And this, how this thing ties in with it and how it all works and the, the chemistry of things. We're just sitting there marveling. And then at some point, this person will go, and isn't it amazing that it all came about by chance? So some people have lowered it so far down that they've, they honor and they worship chance. People today are in the same boat that these people were in. People today have rejected the one true God. He ends that passage in Romans by saying, because they exchanged, oh, claimed to be wise, they became fools. I, sorry, I didn't click to this. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling immortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature 
rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Worshipped and served the created things instead of the creator. I want to share another story with you before we get back. Just to think about how this big truth can drive your mission. John Piper shares a story of, uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, William Carey was a missionary to India. And he shares the story this way. He says, in 1797, four years after he came to India, Carey tells of being confronted by a Brahmin. Okay? Eastern religion here. Carey had preached on Acts 14, 16, which is right where we're at and 1730, and said that God formerly allowed all men everywhere to go their own way, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. The Brahmin responded, and I want you to see if you can recognize and understand this response. The Brahmin responded, indeed, I think God ought to repent for not sending the gospel sooner to us. Do you get why he would say that? Can you imagine in 1797, the gospel first, first gets there, almost 2,000 years after Christ had been here, the gospel first reaches, and this Brahmin hears the gospel, and Kerry is saying, God has allowed all men everywhere to go their own way, as evidenced by this Eastern religion. But now he wants everyone everywhere to repent, basically calling them to repent. And so this Brahmin, what does he say? He says, I, I think God ought to repent. Why didn't he bring it right away? In other words, what is this guy saying? He's saying, what about my grandfather? My great-grandfather? My great-great-grandfather? What about my ancestors? Because, Carrie, if what you're saying is true, what about them? How would you respond? Would you say, well, I hope that maybe somehow that is not how Carrie responds, and that's not how Paul responded. Listen to William Carey's response in 1797. He says, this I added. Suppose a kingdom had been long overrun by the enemies of its true king. And he, though though possessed of sufficient power to conquer them, should yet suffer them to prevail and establish themselves as much as they could desire. Think about what he's saying here. So imagine you have a king, and say there's this country over here, and this country has rebelled against the king. The king, he has enough power, he could have gone right back in and reconquered it. But instead, he says, I'm going to let you establish yourselves in your own ways as long as you want until you feel absolutely confident that you've figured it all out. That's what carries, that's the picture William Carey's painting. He says, Would not the valor and wisdom of that king be far more conspicuous in exterminating them than it would have been if he had opposed them at first and prevented prevented their entering the country? Thus, by the diffusion of gospel light, the wisdom, power, and grace of God will be more conspicuous in overcoming such deep-rooted idolatries and in destroying all that darkness and vice which have so universally prevailed in this country than they would have been if all had not been suffered to walk in their own way for so many ages past. Do you understand what Kerry's saying? 
He's, saying, he's telling this Brahmin, he said, is God's greatness even more conspicuous? Doesn't God get even more glory? If he, instead of jumping right back in, doesn't, when he says, I'm going to let you go your own way. It reminds me of how with my children, there's been times where I've said, no, you've got to do this, no, you've got to do this. And there's come times where you say, fine, have it your way. And when they go their way, does it end gloriously? No. This is precisely what's happened in our world. God has said, you, remember at the beginning when I said this is a big truth and it's going to be hard to swallow? God has said, I will let you have your way, humanity. And for a time, he let generation after generation, and of their own, not a single one, has of their own come to God. What does God finally do? He brings in his Savior, Jesus, and good news. And it becomes even more glorious now as he goes, the gospel travels across this globe. Go back to Paul's words. In past generations, this is what he was saying to those people that were thinking about Zeus and Hermes. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. I think this also pictures some of our own story. Maybe some of you, even in your own lives, God could have snatched you up when you were little, but he didn't do it. He kind of let you go your own way, and you went down to destruction. I want to tell you today that in your own little story, wherever you're at, whatever you're, whatever's going on, when you're, uh, in your own little story, God now calls all people everywhere to repent. Today is the day of repentance. And that's where I want to go with this. I want to say, you know, as you stay on mission, see, we, we, you, we go out, we share the witness. This is Jesus. He's the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by him. As some people are going to go, that's interesting, intriguing. We could sit down and talk about this for a while. Some people are going to go, that's stupid. You're so narrow-minded. I don't want to hear any more of this because you think your way is right. What about all the other religions of the world? You think you're better than they are? And That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that this way is true. And God is now, he's let other people, all, he's let all these other things develop and grow and try to come up with mending humanity and they've all failed. But Jesus Christ has come and he's offered true salvation from sin, from death, from hell. And he says, now that you hear the truth, he calls you to repent. And so as you stay on mission and you share the mission, it's okay, it's good, it's okay and right to get to a point to say now might be the day that God has called you to repentance. It's okay to say that. They might reject you. They might get mad at you. They might, if this, this country was a little bit less civilized, they might pick up stones and think, man, I want to kill you. It's okay and right to call people to repentance. It's good. It's good for them. It's the good news of the gospel. It is okay and right to call people, call people to abandon their families, even if it's generations of religion, if it's vain and empty, and to call them to the truth. 
Now for these people, there's a whole other section of the story and I actually have planned right here. I had to decide that, that I think I'm going to hold off this next part until the next time. We're going to leave Paul hanging in the balance. I got the whole rest of the story here. You're not going to believe what happens next. Paul's left hanging in the balance. I'll give you a hint of what happens next. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. I mean, it's just going in one ear and out the other. But I want to leave you with this today. As you stay on mission, feel free to, to, to dwell on this big truth for a little bit. Because you're going you're gonna to start thinking about this. And you're going to think, but what, wait, what about, what about, what about, you know the one that always comes up? What about the American Indians? You know, one of the things that drove mission to the Americas was, was, was that idea, mission, to spread the gospel. Now, a lot of other junk came with it. But there were many people that when they were setting foot into this country, this new land, it was about bringing the gospel to every corner of the world. Because they believed that God has at some point allowed all people to go their own way. But now he's calling all to repent. Maybe it's you. Maybe God has let you go your own way for a time. I can remember... Uh, when I first came to Christ, I thought maybe I'd been saved younger. When I first came to Christ, I was reading Scripture. I've shared this many times. James 2.14 really convicted me. But then as I kept reading, I was just looking for, just starting to read the Bible. I can remember Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God calls people to repentance. And it's, he wants you to be that voice, that witness to his good news, and call others to Turn away from the vain things, even if it's generations worth, into something new and real by the living God who made all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I do thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, the tough, big truths that you don't shy away from in your word, but you just build it right into the text. God, I thank you for that. I thank you for your grace. Lord, I know if I had been left to myself, I never would have followed your truth. God, I thank you for others in this room who, Lord, if left to themselves, they never would have followed truth. But God, you've, you've worked your grace in their lives and you've brought them to the truth. I thank you that we as a church have, have come to this place and have believed in the truth of your death, burial, resurrection on the cross that you've given us forgiveness of sins. Lord, I thank you for these great, great things. God, I know that some in this room have people that they care about deeply that are still wrapped up in sometimes generations worth of vain, empty beliefs. Lord, I pray that you give us the strength, the nerve, the wisdom, or the love to call people to repentance, to share your truth, to call out things that are vain and empty as actually vain and empty. Lord, I pray that some will listen. Lord, we know some will oppose. Help us to persevere. I pray, Lord, that some will believe. Some will hear your voice and believe. God, I pray that you'd use us this week. In Christ's name, amen. All right, you guys are dismissed.